Hello, I'm James King. Now, before we begin, if you haven't seen No Time to Die right to the end, then you might want to stop listening because this podcast contains spoilers. Name? Bond. James Bond. The 25th film in Eon's 60-year-old franchise, No Time to Die, was released in September 2021 and delivered twists, turns and one of the most unexpected outcomes in movie history. So in this seventh instalment of the official James Bond podcast, we're going to be getting the exclusive lowdown on some of those unforgettable events. Yes, we'll be breaking down the most critical scenes with the masterminds behind them. Moments that delivered gut-wrenching storylines and jaw-dropping stunts in equal measure. And by deconstructing those scenes that nodded to the franchise's illustrious history, maybe we'll get some clues for the future too. You don't need me to remind you that No Time to Die marked the end of an era for Daniel Craig's James Bond, which makes the question of what next unavoidable. So by going back to the drawing board with the writers and producers to hear how No Time to Die's finale of all finales came into being, we'll try and get some thoughts on how Bond 26 might shape up too. As soon as we sat down in the cinema and heard the roar of MGM's famous lion, we quickly forgot there had been an 18-month delay from the first release date of No Time to Die. But the global pandemic had changed the whole world, and for a while it even looked as if the movie industry might never be in a place to recover. Yet with takings of over $760 million and still counting, it's no wonder that No Time to Die has been credited with saving cinema. Writers Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, seven-time Bond scriptwriters, joined me in the beating heart of a Bond production, producers Michael G. Wilson and, down the line, Barbara Broccoli, to remember the big night when No Time to Die was finally released to the world. Great to see you all. Thank you for joining us. Let's go back to the evening of the 28th of September, first of all, the Royal Albert Hall, the royal premiere of No Time to Die. I know you've all done Bond premieres before, but this one, of course, has a few differences. Not least the big secrets, the big surprises, the big twists, which are about to be revealed to the world. Um, so how are you feeling on that night, Rob and Neil? Let's start with you. How are you feeling knowing that your story is about to be told and about to get out into the open? Well, it was a, a little bit nervy because you you weren't sure how it would go down. And but we had spoken to a couple of people who, because we hadn't seen the film in its finished form, we had spoken to a couple of people who had, and there seemed to be quite a bit of confidence about how good it was. So, so you had that, but you still know that the reviews the next day, you know, could be one way or the other. And thankfully, everything seemed to go in in a positive direction. Yes, and this is like the what was supposed to have happened two years before and you thought well will it ever happen and here it was it was actually happening and it was it was so magical to see three or four thousand people all excited to be with other people and all dressed up and so for it to be our movie being the one reopening the world for business was a pretty exciting moment I have to say and on top of that, knowing that this particular film is all about people, I mean, the communal experience of the big secret being revealed. My daughters were saying to me, you know, everyone's just started looking at each other when they started to think, well, is he going to, is he going to, what's going <laughs> to, is this really happening? And clearly people are going back again and again, Michael, because the movie's been hugely successful and it's been, um, talked about saving cinema. This, I mean, this obviously is what we dreamed of. This must make you incredibly happy to see how successful it's been on the big screen. Well, it's, it's, quite, it's quite flattering and it's also uh, 
quite important that uh, that this film got people back in in the cinema, and that's throughout the world. In the United States, it brought back um, older people to the cinemas. It was quite amazing the way, though, that The Secret managed to, or Secrets managed to, to remain that way for all that period of time. Which was part of the out. reason why I didn't think that what happens would happen, because I thought we would have, someone would have said something yeah. by now. Yeah, and the other thing is, is that the people who go and see the film don't tell other people what happens. That's that's real love and respect for a franchise yeah. mm. there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and we didn't even have to have a Hitchcock-style announcement at the beginning of the film. <laughs> so, from the legends to the first-timers. Kari Joji Fukunaga is the film's director, and he also co-wrote the story. And he joined me alongside director of photography, Linus Sandgren. Linus is the DOP behind American Hustle, First Man, and a multiple award winner for his work on smash hit La La Land. It was the first time the two men had collaborated, and for both it was their first Bond film too. Now the dust has settled, I asked these two masters of their craft to reflect on making No Time to Die. So the film, I think just today I read that it's the biggest Hollywood film in the world for 2021. Yeah. Uh, so congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. And there's this phrase that it saved cinema, and certainly over here in the UK, it got people back to the cinema in a way yeah. that we hadn't seen for a long time. Um, so that must, I mean, it must make you feel great that, that yeah. this is a, an appointment, a cinematic appointment that people really relished. It's definitely surreal. It's surreal that, you know, in terms of especially here in the UK, you know, the, the, the way people turn out to go to the cinema and gone back for repeat viewings and you know I get messages from people who have seen it so many times and it's just like you know that kind of um, support that kind of love for the character it's pretty amazing and I, and I know what it's like when you you know love a film or love something and you go back to the cinema to watch it again and again and again and it's just like that's the magic I mean that's why you make movies I think is to, to give other people that experience and it's hard having made the film it's hard for me to experience it that way because it's you're so you see it so much for what it is, and you know, and having having made it, and all the, the trials and errors you went through in, in, in crafting it. But you know, the fact that audiences get to experience it and experience the magic of cinema in cinemas with other people, and have the laughs, and have the the terror and the cries, and all that. You know, that's that's why we make movies. It's, it's to have that experience. And of course, it made it made the wait worthwhile, didn't it? Because we were all waiting yeah. for it for for many months. Yeah. But I, I knew that as soon as it came out people would forget about the weight and they'd just enjoy the film and yeah. the weight wouldn't be a big thing anymore. And tell me about your experience then of being DOP on a Bond movie because I know you've been a Bond fan for a long time. I think you were making your own mini Bond movies when you were it younger. Yeah. Um, maybe tell us about those first of all. What did oh they involve? God. <laughs> no, they were very small. You know, a role of uh, Super 8 is very short. Uh, it's like two and a half minutes. <laughs> but I know I had a friend, we, we, we were curious, you know, we never saw it as um, we're going to become filmmakers or anything. It was more like um, playing, really. You still got them? I think so, somehow. <laughs> so it should be somewhere. But I, I grew up like playing a lot with that. And I mean, I wasn't much into sports. And, and in fact, the reason I, I left actually playing football and started to go to a scuba diving club was very much impacted by Bond movies as well because of the underwater scenes in films. Were you wearing so, a tuxedo underneath your always, scuba outfit? Yeah, of course. Always, yeah. Who, who doesn't? Nobody. It was. I think I, I've been inspired that way. And then obviously getting a call from Kerry about um, the film was. Um, it's a big honor, you know, to be offered to do a Bond film. But um, it was really like the talk I had with Kerry. I was so happy, really, for his approach to it. You know that he he also had that sort of the view of what Bond should be and what he wanted to do with it that um, really um, responded to me. And one of the key points for me that Kerry mentioned was that he wanted it to be like, you know, a huge sort of spectrum of emotions throughout the film that you want to be on a ride, that the heightened reality goes in different directions of emotions. And what can you do technically in your role to help with those emotional scenes? I think uh, part of it is uh, subjective to each cinematographer, what you feel, and director, what you feel is right for the language. But um, to me, for example, shooting on film is uh, always helping me to create a slightly more heightened or magical 
image that is it, it, it enhances colors it, it does things like this so if we want to introduce colors and such we do it in the lighting and we do it uh, with the help of the film and you find a, a language thanks to the script and how what you want to describe and if it's if it's for example something very um, intimate you uh, you may want to be very close to the characters in their faces and even in scenes that are action scenes uh, we decided a lot of times to actually be with Bond, very close to Bond in those action sequences for a more sort of immersive experience. So there's always, I, th I think what, what, what is the key to it all is that you, you break down into each scene and see what is, what is the emotions you want, you're after in this. Is this, is this terror or like horror than like we did in the Norway in the beginning. We, we were quite still with the imagery, slowly suspenseful, dolly moves very contrasted to what we did with Bond when he was like fighting himself up the staircase where he's under fire and we're all handheld and it's sort of a big just mess and chaos. Before we take a closer look at some key scenes, I caught up with first-time Bond writer Phoebe Wallerbridge, who's behind global successes Fleabag and Killing Eve, and asked her for some more details about her part in No Time to Die. Were there specific characters that you were asked to work on to sprinkle your magic over? No, um, I think a lot of the assumptions were that I was brought on for the ladies, um, but that was never mentioned to me in the early meetings. It was just to have an eye on it um, and to work with Kerry and, and everyone on it as a piece as a whole. So no, I got I got to tinker with all of the characters, which was really fun. But then again, like I say, that there may be, I may be working on a character and then Carrie would suddenly find a focus on that character that would then mean that my, that, that I'd move off that character onto something else. And it was really, at the end of the day, it was, he would choose what was in and what, and what wasn't. So um, it was very sort of flexible like that. You said about Killing Eve that my instinct is the more serious the scene, the more I need to undercut it. Was that the case also with No Time to Die, to bring in the comedy? Yeah, and I think that's intrinsic in Bond, in the in his character. He's always undercutting and he's always, you know, he's always seemingly in control. So even when he loses control, you know there'll be a moment when he'll sort of slide out of that death-defying action sequence with a martini and a, and a line. And that's part of the glory of him and the, and the joy of him. And I feel like that's why I was so, so excited about working on this and so drawn to this character in this world because it afforded it afforded those, well, him in particular, um, but characters to have that turn on a dime wit that is just not necessarily entirely real to, to everyday life. God, I wish it was that we were all doing that. But that, um, that you know, it, it can be heightened enough for, for that to happen. And I think I did feel that, you know, all the way through working on this was, you know, when can, when can we twist it? When can the wit find its way in? Because one of the main things I love about this character and 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 all of the different stories and films and books you know is is is, is the wit so i think it was it's it's incredibly important to maintain that there's something i need to tell you i bet there is Time to break down those spine-tingling stunts and action scenes now. Special effects coordinator Chris Corbold, who has been described as a genius by countless colleagues, is the engineering mastermind behind No Time to Die. This is his 12th Bond film, and he's the man behind eye-popping 007 moments such as GoldenEye's tank chase and Skyfall's underground train crash. Plus, he famously holds the Guinness World Record for the largest film stunt explosion in cinematic history for Spectre. Here's Chris with a spoiler-full explanation of how some of the most iconic scenes in the movie were made and how he and director Kari Joji Fukunaga reworked what had come before. Now, working with, with Kari was great. You know, you, you need to bring new blood and new you know, new energy into the franchise to keep it fresh, you know, and uh, he, he brought something to the table which which really worked. You know, we obviously went to an emotional level that we'd never been to with Bond before, certainly not on films that I've worked on or, or watched on the screen. So, but, you know, he brought, you know, a, a rationale to, you know, for instance, to DB5, you know, do we stick with the 
the Goldfinger traditional weapons and gadgets on the car or do we, you know, change them for more modern ones? We design various wild and wacky gadgets <laughs> to, to, to put forward, you know, from drones coming out the rear number plate. Wow. To, you know, the car going over the top of a cliff and a Union Jack wings coming out of the roof. You know, we went through various stages of designing stuff and some of it we actually built as prototypes. But we all came to the conclusion at the end and, um, you know, Carrie was on board with it, that we stay fairly faithful. But, for instance, you know, the single-barreled Browning-type gun that came out, the small light, originally Carrie felt he wanted to upgrade. So we put the multi-barreled revolving mini guns, which gave us a, you know some great scope, you know, for that f- final sequence in the square. Uh, you know, with shells coming out the side out the side vent and the smoke screen, we kept traditional, and then we upgraded the the tire spikes to the little bomblet. So we had some fun with it. I like to think the number plate would have revolved if we'd have needed to see that. Like in in Goldfinger. Well, that's a bizarre thing because we actually made LED number plates. Oh, right. Which looked fantastic, actually. So we had, uh, I think it was an Italian number plate. We had a Swiss number plate, an English number plate, which actually we shot out on a road near Matera. But they actually cut it from the film in the end. It's funny you should mention the emotions as well. Obviously, there are big human emotions going on in this. But I, maybe this is just me, but I got emotional when I saw the DB5 being really trashed in Matera. And just the guns going at it and at it and at it and the glass about to shatter. Mm. Just seeing something, that iconic car, I'm just thinking, but that's the classic James Bond car. They're trashing it. That's awful. It's weird that I should feel emotional about a car, but that's the power of James Bond, isn't it? Uh, I think it was a very powerful scene, actually. They've been obviously shot at from all angles and then, you know, the the villain comes in and starts pumping away at it. You can see it starting to give and give and... You know, Bond's got this stony face and then he just flicks the button and off he goes. But, you know, the DB5 is is almost another character. We blew it up in Skyfall, if you remember. But there was days and days of discussion about whether we should blow it up, shouldn't blow it up. And um, eventually, you know, it got quite uh, quite vociferous. Uh, half the people wanted to blow it up, the other half didn't. But eventually we blew it up. But then it came back, if you remember, it came back Inspector into the Q branch. So we assumed it's rebuilt which gave us the, the licence to do what we did in No Time to Die. Any world records broken this time around for you? I believe there was, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Wow, what was it? <laughs> it was the most high explosive used in one shot, in one take or something. Right, so where was this? What, what, this was, uh, well, it was actually um, for the big scene at the end with Daniel, you know, the three explosions in the bunkers in front of him. We went down to Salisbury Plain and set off three massive explosions, which uh, one was... 400 yards away and the next one was 300 yards away and the last one was 100 yards away which the CGI people then blended in to create that final scene with Daniel and I believe we got um, the most high explosive used in a single take or something. So yeah, we're going to do one on every bond, I think. (laughs) What were the toughest bits for you in your role? The the toughest bits were, I'm particularly proud, and because it was so challenging, was the um, the sinking trawler sequence with Daniel and Jeffrey in there. You know, it was, for want of a better word, it was a 60-foot spit roast that could rotate 360 degrees and then sink into the water. At Pinewood? At Pinewood in the underwater stage. Um, and I love those big mechanical rigs. And um, I mentioned to Daniel, you know, what we were planning. And I said, but I think you need to come down and rehearse this. And he said, oh, you you always make me nervous when you say that, Chris. So, but, <laughs> you know, we, we took him down there. And it was quite claustrophobic. You know, the, 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 the cabin, the, the, the dimensions of the cabin weren't that big. Um, so when it started to go down into the water, you know, and it rotate at the same time, it was quite disorientating. But, you know, we had lots of safety panels that, you know, we informed them of that. So if ever they felt uncomfortable, they could just lift their hand up and it, they could push off a safety panel and go to the surface. But we rehearsed it with Daniel and Jeffrey, and Jeffrey had a gas of a time. He absolutely adored it. He loved every minute. But it was a very emotional scene. And, um, you know, once we started sinking it and rotating it, we, we injected lots and lots of compressed air in there, which really made Daniel and Jeffrey fight for their breath. You know, it... it, it I think it contributed a lot to the scene, the fact they really were having to fight against the, these bubbles coming up. Uh, and then we had that very emotional moment with Jeffrey obviously dying. Uh, and I, 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 but I loved it. I thought it, it worked tremendously. Well, that's the classic example of where what you do marries with 
the emotional side as well. And it has to. I mean, obviously it has to look good mm-hmm. and it has to have that technical side to it, but it also needs to work with the emotions, doesn't it? Oh, totally. I, I, I'm not a great fan of explosions and special effects and visual effects just gratuitously. You know, for me, it has to fit in with the storyline, the characters. It has to be part of the script. That's really important to me. And more as I've got hold of that's the way I feel. But, you know, I think that that particular scene, the sinking trawler, was a wonderful marriage between special effects and visual effects within the emotional side because you had special effects doing the whole physical sinking part of it. You had visual effects then taking over and doing the, the underwater exterior of the boat combined with Daniel and Jeffrey's wonderful performances. And how did the team make this emotional performance audible? That comes down to Simon Hayes, Oliver Tarney and Paul Massey, who were part of the No Time to Die sound department. Here is Simon Hayes and discussing the technique that Chris has termed orchestrated bubbles. Well, the scene where where Felix unfortunately meets his death um, was one of those classical scenes where on a normal movie, on a normal big budget action movie, everyone would be saying, look, we're just going to ADR or loop in, in American vernacular. We're just going to loop this scene, which means we're going to not worry about the sound and we're going we're gonna to record all of the dialogue afterwards. And it, it kind of makes sense because these actors, they're in a, a set which is being filled up with water. There's, ca- there's handheld cameras everywhere in underwater housings. It's very, very tough to, to get sound in those situations. And here's the thing. I'm a really strong believer, and I know Kerry is too, that there is a a unique magical presence in the original performance on the set that is just so difficult to recreate in ADR. Kerry said to me, look, is it going to be possible? Can you get these recordings good enough that I can use them? And I said, I can, as long as Chris Corbold and myself have enough time to plan this. And Chris and I have worked together before and he's just, he's not a technician, he's a creative. And what he does is just above and beyond. And what he was able to do as the engine room filled with water was we needed bubbles and we needed them to be quite uh, robust and violent, if you like. But he was able to place tubes around the engine room that uh, and and he was able to make sure that the bubbles were only bursting into the water where the dialogue wasn't happening. And basically what Chris and his team were doing was making sure that whenever they kind of surfaced and had those those little snippets of dialogue, that the bubbles in that particular area were much, much lighter and the bubbles in the area which were in shot but not absolutely on top of the dialogue were much heavier and so it was almost as chris says he orchestrated the bubble making equipment to make sure that it didn't obliterate the dialogue and what we were able to do was to record that incredibly tender and emotional performance from daniel as his confident was was dying and i've got to tell you that that it was a very real scene for them that that uh, room really was filling up with water they really were running out of time it was tough i was so impressed with their ability to be able to act in that kind of situation and i feel the tenseness and the the desire to get out of there really comes across in their dialogue and you know and also the emotional side of, of felix saying his final goodbye You got this. Yeah. Yeah. Make it worth it. It's a good life. Isn't it? The best. Felix. Felix. And another scene that blew our minds? When we were introduced to Cuban agent Paloma, played by Ana de Armas, alongside new 007 Nomi, played by Lashana Lynch, both of whom were part of a showdown of epic proportions in Santiago. (laughs) 
scene like this to happen, it's down to a symbiotic collaboration across departments, particularly between special effects and production design. While Chris Corbold heads up special effects, it's the job of Mark Tildesley and his team to design these sets. Here Chris spoke to me about working with Mark to create that momentous Cuba sequence, which was shot at Pinewood Studios. The Cuban street scene was a collaboration between a lot of departments. You know, obviously uh, Mark uh, Tildesley, he designed the set. We had to have action in the set, you know, and we got together with Carrie and the stunt people and decided, you know, he, he, there were a few moments that Carrie really wanted, you know, the, the car driving into the, the, the scaffolding, which all collapses, was a, a key moment. All the, the lampposts coming down, the sparking was another key moment. So we had to work with, you know, Mark and the stunt guys. You know, Mark, we, we positioned lampposts where we could hinge them and control them coming down so we knew exactly where they would go and then we'd let off loads of sparks. The scaffolding, we had to build a special effects rig that had to be hinged and full, looked like it was real, but we knew exactly how it would end up. It struck me that, you know, his department, they put so much, obviously, effort into creating these beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of them are destroyed, blown up. <laughs> and it's part of the story. Look, it's a Bond movie. It has to yeah. happen. But I just wonder about, you know, do you ever think, oh, my God, I'm destroying all this guy's hard work? Or does he ever think, oh, no, I put all that effort into these sets and now they're just collapsing? Yeah, I think there was, um, you, you know, this was obviously Mark's first Bond and uh, he knew deep down that we were going to do some damage to it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, he took that on board. But Mark is, is, a, is a great character and he, uh, he's got a wonderful sense of humour. So he always saw the funny side of it when he looked at his sets after we'd blown them to pieces. Here are director Kari Fukunaga and director of photography Linus Sandgren giving me their take on that stunning Cuba scene. One film reviewer described it as like watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers <laughs> because it has that dance, that choreography to it. Yeah. Um, tell me about filming that. How long did it take for a start to get that right? Well, that was an unusual one because that was scheduled very early on due to Anna's availability. And right before we were about to shoot it, we were in Jamaica and Daniel took a, a bad step down a ramp and ended up really hurting his his ankle and I think tearing some tendons and stuff yeah, and basically hearing about put him out of commission for a few weeks. And so we had to shoot with Anna because we had her for such a short time and we were potentially going to be able to have her in October, but it wasn't certain. And so we basically shot everything we could with her. With where we a, didn't see Where we Daniel. didn't see Daniel or Daniel from behind, which is a, not normally how I would construct a scene. And then the very last thing we shot in the entire schedule six months later was the same sequence, and we finished it out. And wow. it was uh, so you could say the scene took six months to make. A sometimes subtler way of telling Bond's story is in the set decoration. For No Time to Die, that was down to Veronique Mellory, and she told me about some of the intricate methods her team used to bring Carrie's vision to life. She also touched on the many nods and references to the past that were built into the sets that she and Mark Tildesley collaborated on, primarily inspired by the work of original Bond production designer Ken Adam. She told me about two particular examples of how she weaved Bond's rich history into the film. The portrait of M, that, that painting was in the... Um in the archives of Ian and I thought it would be it would be really nice to to bring it back to set and give him another moment of fly, life and fame and being present with these uh, this new bond and then I commissioned the two the, the previous one and uh, Andrew D. Dench two, dif two different painters who were the portraitists who were doing each a certain kind of style that I thought was working well with the character and uh, the time they they were supposed to be in uh, in activity as M's. That was a nice touch, I find. It was a sort of an homage without being ostentatious. You know, it was quite discreet homage. And I suppose getting started on your research, the first thing you would need is is the script, so you know the storyline and what you're going to need to, to think about and create. And then you've got 24 other films to go back to and look at. I presume you really went back to those films to look at what had happened in the past. Oh, I didn't stop looking back. back. I didn't stop 
watching the movies and bits of the movies and trying to analyze the best of the work that, that the, all these pairs of mine have done before. And then I was trying to forget about that because you can't be paralyzed. You have to move on. I love the bit when James goes to his lockup, his garage, uh, to get his Aston Martin, which is undercover. And it's quite a, a brief moment in the film, but I was really trying to pause it and watch it slowly to see what else was in that space in his lockup. And am I right in thinking there was like a rail of suits in there and some skis, just maybe things from his almost his past life, because now he's retired, he doesn't need these things anymore. It's, it, yes, all of that was there. We tried to imagine what he could have kept after all his moves and all his, his, his trips. And uh, he's, a very, he's a very sportive person. He likes different kind of sports. He kept his equipment. He kept books. He kept his uniforms of the past. He kept things that we, we don't really see because they are, they are in the boxes. And until then, I suppose we saw, in the previous movies, we saw often boxes and, and bits of his life, but not much. And suddenly between the lockup, even if it goes really fast, and we have a glimpse of, of what he cherished, the vision of his house in Jamaica, we discover a character who has chosen to, to keep and to live with, with certain kind of objects and, and, and properties. Tributes were paid throughout this 25th Bond film to the 60 years that had gone previously. Coming up, director Kari Fukunaga dissects some other historic Bond moments that they decided to revisit in No Time to Die, referencing one 007 movie in particular. But first, Barbara Broccoli and writers Robert Wade and Neil Purvis on why it was important to have one eye on the past. We wanted this film to to really, you know, be an homage to all the films that have come before. And, and you'll see it throughout this movie. You'll see references to, to the other films. And, you know, the emotional context of this film is definitely deeply imbued with the film on Her Majesty's Secret Service in, you know, so many ways. And of course, that's why people are going back to see it more than once, because there is that emotional connection. You wouldn't, if it, if it was a cold thing, you wouldn't do that. And I guess as writers, you, you obviously want people who might only see it once to, to have an instant reaction, but you're also very happy when people see it more than once because you have put things in there that mean you can be rewarded with multiple viewings. It's a difficult balance though, isn't it? Because you don't want to write something throwaway, but at the same time, you do want to write something that has an instant reaction. Yeah, I mean, I think you do want to write something that people go and see twice. I mean, <laughs> and I think that that, I'm hoping that that will be the case with this film because I think you see it once and you're kind of overwhelmed by the spectacle and the emotional spectacle as well as the visual splendour of it. But also then you need to recalibrate your feelings about it and just check, was that all right? You know, am I all right to feel that way? I think people did that with Skyfall as well. I mean, I think the ending that no one was expecting led everyone to want to reevaluate the film and go from the start again. I, I remember someone went, didn't someone literally come out and go back in again? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the optimum Thing. Yeah, um, I guess that it was. It has to stand alone as well. So, yeah. you know, something like understanding that Vesper meant something to him. I think that's that's all very clear without you having yeah, to have seen have, Casino Royale. Someone did ask me who was the uh, you know a grown man uh, asked me who was the girl in the photo on the tomb. I mean, he just wanted to know because he clearly didn't know, but yeah. but he knew that it was important. But he was curious about it. Um, and so, did you sell him a did you sell him a DVD of Casino Royale? <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, but it was my own pirate copy. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie Joji Fukunaga and Lena Sandgren. Those on Her Majesty's Secret Service references. When did they come into the script? Very early on. I actually hadn't seen On Her Majesty's Secret Service until I got this job, and then I went back and sort of did a deep dive. I actually think it's one of the best ones. And I thought the production value and the craft was very strong in that film. But especially, I think I reacted to the emotional aspects of it and Bond having a wife and having this wife murdered by, you know, 
Blofeld's lackeys. And so- It's very funny too. Yeah, there's humor, it's, it's, it's kind of like classical, like field craft as well. There's a lot of things happening in that, in that film. Oh, and then on top of that, you know, the Louis Armstrong song uh, is just, you know, brilliant. So it's, I think that's also probably one of my favorite Bond songs. Will you marry me? So to be able to reprise that and bring it into the story and, and kind of honor that bit of legacy uh, was something I, I definitely wanted to bring into this one. And uh, You Only Live Twice was also a really big influence with Killing Blofeld and the Poison Garden and The Child as well as, as part of You Only Live Twice. In, in terms of the book, I'm talking about the book, not the movie. There was a lot of short stories uh, on Bond that I, that I used as references as well because a lot of the short stories have really great um, uh, inner monologue observations. Barbara was the one that suggested that I read You Only Live Twice. So I think you know it was really important to her that The Poison Garden and The, the Killing of Blofeld and these kind of things come into the story. And she's, you know, I think she felt like reading that book would be the, the best way to kind of understand this other side of Bond than the one that I had grown up with simply by watching the movies. And I, I, I gravitated towards the writing that spoke to Fleming's struggles with being the judge, jury, and executioner. Tell me about some other, I guess, some people call them Easter eggs, but like homage scenes or moments that, that hark back to other Bond films and, and, and Bond sort of iconography. There's, yeah. the, there's a barrel moment, isn't there, in... Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, the that was just that was kind of pure accident. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it wasn't an accident. We saw it. We were like, we, saw, oh, yeah. we, saw it. we, should, we should absolutely set it. That looks like the set. barrel shot. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's put another bad guy here. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of a little, almost like a little humoristic. Yeah. Um, the fans love that particularly. There's it's, also a lot of people on the crew, you know, in various departments that have worked on multiple Bond films yeah. and are encyclopedic in their knowledge of the Bond universe. And there's a joy. I don't know how, how you'd categorize the joy of Easter eggs other than you can call it layered symbolism. You could just call it, you know, inside jokes. But, you know, to put a truck, you know, that's been in a previous Bond film on the Cuba streets or to whether it's certain words, names of places, color, props, things that, that harken back or repetitions of previous Bond films, you know, it's part of the kind of like how C.S. Lewis talks about the inner circle. It's like for those who are the major fans, they're going to say like, oh, the people who are at the center of this haven't forgotten me, you know. And... Of course, since people have seen the film, there's now so much speculation about what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. So because the film leaves it open, mm -hmm. so I'm guessing that was a deliberate thing that you wanted to leave things so open that, that really anything could happen next, apart from Daniel Craig returning. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that if Barbara and Michael have a plan, I have no idea what it is. But, uh, you know, for us it was important that at least for me, it was important, you know, and I'm sure for you that the film ends in a satisfying way and that it ends within the logic of what we set up. You know, there's some kind of arc within the film and also an arc that was set up in the Daniel Craig films that it also completes within this chapter. And what the family decides to do next is beyond that, you know. There was no uh, intention to make an ending to the film that was like a hint towards another future. Some people have asked me, oh, so is, is Matilda going to be the next Bond? You know, I'm like, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought about that. You know, when I made that scene, I just, I just thought that was the right way to end the story, closing in on the tunnel and have that sort of visual, symbolic idea of the tunnel closing, just like you have the gun barrel in the beginning. And, you know, using Louis Armstrong in the credits, you know, was just kind of, again, it's that repetition, which is satisfying, you know, to, to the way we tell stories. And it's interesting because there's, there's nods to the past, obviously. But also, I love the way that the 007 codename has been so quickly replaced. Nomi's come in, she's yeah. now got that. So there's also this suggestion that, you know, things move on. Yeah. Yes, there's the past, yes, there's memory, but also we move forward and we get on with things and new people come it's in. It's just a job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or Bond is just a number. Yeah, Bond is just a number, yeah. <laughs> well, that's not the first thing I thought you'd take off, but... Uh... Yeah. You seem like a man who's... Gagging for some action, Mr. Bond. Shall we cut to the chase? 
I'm here as a professional courtesy. Well, you're not very courteous, are you? You've broken my card. It's Commander Bond. You know that. Double O? Two years. Very young. High achiever. Oh, Jesus Christ. The world's moved on since you retired, Commander Bond. Perhaps you didn't notice. No, can't say I had. And in my humble opinion, the world doesn't change very much. You had to say that. Look, this all seems like heaven. This little bubble, or whatever. <laughs> but it's so obvious you're a man who only has time to kill. Nothing to live for. So Valdo Oprachev is off limits. You get in my way? I will put a bullet in your knee. The one that works. You need to ask yourself a few more questions. MI6, CIA, chasing after the same man, not communicating with each other. That's not good. Hmm. Yeah, you know what? Tell him hello, but I don't work for him anymore. Tell him yourself. By the way, I'm not just any old double O. I'm double O seven. You probably thought they'd retire it. It's just a number. Huh. Yeah. Robert Wade and Barbara Broccoli. Going back to the fact that you mentioned Bond's relationship with Nomi in Cuba, I love it when Bond gets a dressing down. And there's certainly echoes of the dressing down he got from M in Goldeneye, I think, with Nomi, basically telling him he's out of date. It must be fun to write those lighter moments, to write the gags, to write the quips, as well as the big political heavy storyline as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, that scene, it changed, but it's essentially always been the same of, of him. I mean, you're really writing to get a look on Daniel's face and have this quite strident female character that challenges him. Yes, it was Barbara's idea to make it a female 007, as far as I remember. Yeah. But Lashana is so, so fantastic in yeah, that yeah, scene because yeah. she manages to really pull it off because she really gets to him. But she does it in such a kind of a cool, kind of witty way with great authority. But she's, she's just terrific. And, you know, I think the chemistry between the two of them and her arc in the story is just fantastic. I mean, she, she goes from sort of, you know, ridiculing him to begrudgingly working with him to coming to really understand what's going on with him. And then she's so gracious with him and she maintains her authority and her power, but her humanity. And, and I think it's just, she's just a fantastic actress. And we, you know, we also sort of had this backstory that no one wanted to take the double O number and, and she was, she went for it and she got it and she lived up to it. So I just, I'm in awe of her. She's terrific. We first meet Nomi in Jamaica, which is described as Bond's spiritual home. Barbara Broccoli revealed to me that the significance of him returning to the island in No Time to Die, the place where Ian Fleming really gave birth to the character, was due to the fate James would later meet in the movie. It's a story of beginnings and endings. Daniel Craig on what it was like being in Jamaica and first meeting Nomi, his replacement as 007. I, I mean, I don't think there's a power play between the two of them. I do think that kind of they're just, you know, Bond is, I think, feels very cynical about the whole, whether it's, you know, world politics or, or what being in the in the service is about. I mean, I think he's just got to that stage in his life. And what's happened to him, and he's, I suppose he's feeling battered and he's feeling kind of like he doesn't really care. Actually, he really does care. He desperately cares and he's desperate to get back into the game. And here comes this, you know, some young blood who comes in and sort of basically tells him to back off, which is just red rag to a bull. I mean, you know, he's not going to back off from anything. And, and of course, it comes at the same time as, as Bond meeting up with a lighter, so, and he doesn't really understand exactly what's going on, so he's desperate to find out. And it just piques his interest. And Nomi kind of plays, you know, Lashana plays Nomi, is sort of comes in and just challenges him and it sort of sets the ball rolling for a really great relationship. You can't apologize for what Bond is. He's very flawed. He's got problems with women, shall we say. And it's interesting if you put up strong women against that. The same way that the relationship with Judy was was interesting because he's he's not yeah, I don't I don't make apologies for who he is. And so I, I just always have said this the best way to deal with it is to have as strong a female characters as we can possibly get. And we've got 
Lashana and Anna Diamas and, and Leia, who are just phenomenal, phenomenal actors. How is it being in, in GoldenEye, the very heart of, of Ian Fleming's James Bond? I mean, you should see his house. <laughs> um, well, let's look. Ian Fleming wrote most of the novels there, not all the novels, at Goldeneye, which was his house, which is now a very beautiful hotel. Uh, and you can visit the room he wrote the, the novels in. So we, we actually uh, stayed there and you got to see his desk and it's a pretty nice place to write, nice place to be. For me, it was a thrill. I mean, we started off in the Bahamas on, uh, on Casino which was just being in the you know in the Caribbean was uh, is nice enough, but just it feels like such a bomb thing. It's like whether it's Doctor No and it's or Live and Let Die. It's like that, the the connection is uh, is a solid one, and for us to start off there, it, it, it felt like the right thing to do. Tell us about creating that ending then, because I know you are heavily involved in the writing process. There were lots of different ideas that came and went and some of it stuck. The through line of this is family and love and those two things, plus the fact we had an end and we we knew where we wanted to get to. So it was about hanging the film off that. It's a massive collaborative effort with the writers and with all of us, with Carrie. We sit, most nights after filming, we would be in Carrie's office just bashing out scenes to try and eke out the story and to finesse it and make it better and make it. So we we all had a had 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 input into it in varying ways. I, I tend not to uh, shut up or, or keep my mouth shut about things. I mean, I, I, and the only reason I want to get involved is because I just I just want it to be the best it, it can be. And Carrie was a hell of a collaborator, so it was uh, very satisfying when we got it when we figured things out. It was really very very satisfying. So there it is, that ending. I asked Carrie Fukunaga and Lena Sandgren how they went about transferring Daniel's final moments from script to screen and working with Daniel to create it. But first, Chris Corbold gave me his take on the end of an era. Now we can talk more openly about the movie mm. and, and details of the movie. And, you know, of course, we're going to be talking about... James Bond's fate, the death of James Bond. We never thought it would happen, but it's happened in this film. You obviously knew about that. You couldn't say anything about that. How was that, whatever it was, two, three-year period where you couldn't reveal anything, but you knew this big secret? Well, for that reason, I didn't actually want to see the film for that reason. It was it was quite bizarre. And, you know, I even though I knew what the ending was, I still shed a tear in both times I went and saw the film. It was like so emotional and the music really got me. And, um, you know, for me, it was the end of an era because I'd done six films with Daniel, including Tomb Raider and The Five Bonds. So, you know, we'd become fairly close during it. So it was the end of an era, really. So I had mixed feelings about actually seeing the film and the feelings that I would go through uh, when I saw that final scene. Uh, No, it was quite... Quite emotional, really. We've had all these discussions ahead of time. We've sat in this trailer and we've talked about the shape of the whole story. We know exactly, you know, what we want the audience to feel, what the character is going through. He knows how he wants to play it. We've been talking since we first met about this ending. You know, that's an ending that's been there since the very beginning, at least of my experience with the project. So 
at that point, you know, all those discussions have happened. Then it's just about, you know, Linus and I trying to figure out, okay, what are the angles we need to tell mm-hmm. this part of the story? And then it's just trying to get those done before the day is over. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of a strange practicality to it. It's unemotional when you're actually doing it. And then it's only, it's emotional when you're conceiving of it and it's emotional when you're watching it at the end. But when you're actually doing it, usually yeah. it's not very emotional. It's, it's, it's just practical. It's, yeah. But that, was there no emotion on set thinking we've just filmed this big moment? No, <laughs> it wasn't. And on top of that, it was very much a closed set. We were completely surrounded in greens. Obviously a top secret moment in terms of, you know, what it was really the only crew, I think even the sides were redacted. And, um, you know, the only people that could really know what was happening were really HODs and the most essentials. I'm amazed we were able to keep the secret as long as we did. But I do remember that I felt, you know, like I oftentimes can, in the moment, like you, you are very practical and you're doing things, you're very focused on sort of the the technicalities of things, but obviously you connect your, your work is sort of based on the emotions of the story, so you sort of make choices that are emotional and stuff. But sometimes, you know, you, you which is the beauty of filmmaking too, is that you get taken out from your sort of professional side of it and become sort of an audience when you're watching, you know, the monitor or through the camera, uh, certain moments when performance is just incredible. And I remember in that case that um, uh, when we had that close-up of, it was a crane shot, we had a close-up of uh, Daniel when he looks up at the missiles and it's a very powerful image, like uh, very tight on his face shooting. To go back to the beginnings when you first decided that James Bond would meet his end in this film, is there one person who had that idea or how did you come up with that and and were there people for it, were there people against it? Well, I think that uh, a lot of us um, was thinking that was the right way to go and, and I think all of us discussed it. It seemed like a situation that we could tackle for the first time in the Bond series. Daniel had said he, after the fourth one, he didn't want to come back. And Barbara got a hold of him and said, look, there's something more to be told here and we should finish this out. And I think this was the fitting way to do it. As far as the opening night went, you know, I, uh, I was fairly confident because I knew we had a fantastic film and that, uh, it would wow everyone. Some people may not like what we do, but I think uh, everyone will be moved by it because it was a very intense experience and uh, it, it turned out to be so. And Daniel was involved in deciding what would happen to the character as well? Was he part of the James Bond will die discussions? I think he very much wanted it to resolve that way. And so what were those discussions like then early on where you were deciding about his fate? We all convened in Beverly Hills in early 2017, I think. And we were talking about always wanting to get the poison garden from You Only Live Twice into the films. We tried several times and it always ended up falling by the wayside. So it just seemed that that and the idea of Daniel's death were dovetailed yeah but what's great about the fact that you have a a franchise is that all these great ideas that come and go you know they they're still around so as robin nail said you know we've been trying to work the poison garden into the story for so many movies and then they find if they're good they find their place you know yeah you're right and it wasn't worth being used up in skyfall which at one point it was but this was perfect i thought did you find yourself because it's so emotional it's heartbreaking to watch did you you're finding yourself in a situation robin neil where you're writing more emotional scenes than you've ever had to write before for a bond movie yeah well i think the first time when you wrote it or one wrote it um it was actually very emotional writing it down and even though when you finally got to see the film and you knew what was coming I still, I found it quite devastating, the whole end. The other great thing about the way it unfolded is that, of course, you know, Bond has always been unable to have a family because he could never put himself in a situation where 
you know, a villain could threaten the lives of his family because then he would be in an impossible situation. That's why he's always just, you know, been a singular person because he can always give up his own life for the right reasons, but it would be too difficult for him to be put in that situation. So, of course, that's the ultimate position to put him in. And, you know, it was such a clever twist. Now we are both poisoned with heartbreak. Two heroes in a tragedy of our own making. Anyone we touch, we are their curse. Struck to their cheek, a kiss would kill me instantly. Yes, Madeline. Yes, Matilda. I think it was Michael originally who came up with the idea of the DNA-targeted weapon, which then became, you know, part of the emotional story. And, you know, the idea that he now found a family, but that he would not be able to touch them or be with them was the most, you know, heartbreaking ending to the character. So... We had a log line, didn't we, uh, that we referred to every now and again during the development, which was that he had nothing to live for and then found something to die for. Yeah, that's the perfect kind of encapsulation of where we, we wanted to go. And I think that the writers did a great job in getting us there. And, of course, you know, Daniel's performance is extraordinary. Mm. Do you get a lot of people, as they know that you've written Bond films, asking you what the future is, what's going to happen next? Do people think you know the answer? I've certainly had that. My eldest daughter, though, came up to me at the premiere and said, oh, oh, Dad, I see you're just trying to make it really hard for whoever follows you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) She knows what I'm like. Because do you read the theories at all? Have you read about any of the theories? Matilde's being the new Bond? Everybody's uh, got a theory, and it's it's great that people just shows you how, uh, what affection they have for the character and what, uh, how they all feel it's a cultural icon that they have a stake in the future on. So uh, I think... uh, you know, I, I've certainly seen plenty of... Uh, Has anyone... Because I, I thought that in the... Um, I think the, the clue's clearly there in, in Casino Royale when, when Bond says, you know, she says, I love you even if all that was left of you was your little finger. And, um, you yeah. know, that's, that's my theory. <laughs> that's all that's, that's left, left of it. <laughs> yeah, because you know what I can do with it. And then they... they they clone him from that little finger. Yeah. I mean, that's, well, there you go. It's written in. That, you wrote that and knowing that uh, way back then. Well, I think, um, you know, everyone has a theory and uh, that's great. And I'm happy they do. And you can sit there laughing at the ridiculousness of some of them thinking, why on earth do they think that? Well, I think uh, nothing is ridiculous. In, uh, in this, they're all valid. Yeah, they can all, they're all valid. We've talked before, Michael, about your father, about Cubby, and, and the phrase he said to you and Barbara, words to the effect of don't screw it up. Do, do you, yeah. No, that's actually, that's not correct. What no, no, he, he said. Didn't. He said, he don't said, let don't anyone let... else screw it up. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said, you guys can screw it up. You have to be brave and you have to make decisions. Yeah. Uh, and you have to, you know, you have to change things up. But don't, you know, but you can screw it up, but don't let anybody else screw mm. it up. Oh, that's it's what they difference. say to us. It's what they say to us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we say to them, don't screw yeah. it up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, have, have you thought what he might have thought about this film well he might have thought about no time to die and 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 seeing james bond die on screen i think he would have been proud of it he was uh yeah he uh i think he would have thought this was a fitting resolution of the five films with daniel 
uh, because it tells a story from the beginning uh, through to the end, and that, uh, it seems very fitting. So I think he would have been very happy with it. He would have been very happy with Daniel as the, as the Bond. No Time to Die, the official James Bond podcast, is produced by Something Else in association with MGM Studios, Universal Pictures International, United Artists Releasing and Eon Productions.